0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode four of the Garden Revival BBQ. Garden Revival is an international gardening community on Discord. We record the episodes live and set them free into the world. Join our community at GardenRev.com Discord. We're a fun bunch and we love plants. BBQ stands for Big Burning Questions. Today, we're talking about landscape design. I am your host, I.G., the server's Illegal Guardian. Co-hosting with me is my accountant, Space Butler.
1: Oh yeah, as your accountant, I wanted to ask you about these
2: uh, uh, these seed purchases I heard about.
0: Uh, on the panel today is ecologist Passiflora.
1: Hi there.
0: Professional gardener Zappy Snaps. And back in the panel, because he likes us so much he came back for seconds, is horticulturist Joseph Tychonovich, a.k.a. Plant Nerd. Hello. Hello. Our special guest today is landscape designer Caleb Melchior. Caleb earned a Master's of Landscape Architecture from Kansas State University and now practices in Sanibel Island, Florida. He has worked with famed garden designer P. Allen Smith and has been featured in national and international publications such as The American Gardener, Horticulture, and Landate. Welcome, Caleb. Thanks for coming on our show.
2: Hi, IG. Thank you for that really lovely introduction. I appreciate (laughs) it.
0: Well, my first question for you is, what is a landscape architect?
2: Oh, I am... Probably, I'm a good person to answer that question, but my career as a landscape architect looks a lot different from what most landscape architects do. So what most landscape architects do in their day job is something like what most people would think of as civil engineer or urban planning. So they design all of the suburbs and city centers in which most people live. And so... As a student landscape architect, I pretty quickly realized that that wasn't what I wanted my career to look like. So In my career, I've really focused on planting design and more site scale, kind of planting and ecology type of work, because um, that's what I find the most fun and engaging. So I work mm-hmm. with a really cool little studio on Sanibel Island called Coastal Vista Design, and mm-hmm. we do some gar- like residential garden design. But then we also create public spaces throughout Southwest Florida and the Caribbean. So one of my favorite projects right now that I'm working on is the second phase of planting for a botanical garden on Grand Bahama. Wow. Really exciting.
0: That sounds like a fun trip.
2: Oh, absolutely. We're going in about a month and I can't wait.
0: Oh, nice. I, I would love to see pictures of that. I'm sure you'll be posting them to Instagram.
2: Yes, I will. And I don't know, you can tell people about how they can access. I have pulled, put a couple of photos of some of our work and mm-hmm. some maps of where I'm living and working on the Caleb's presentation channel.
0: Okay. So they okay. can take a
2: look at that when we're done talking.
0: And you're the underscore curious underscore gardener on Instagram, correct?
2: That's correct. Yeah, it's the same as it is on my avatar right now. So it All right,
0: be great. great. All right. I also wanted to ask you, what is the difference between a landscape architect and a landscape designer?
2: So, in the United States, landscape architects are required to have fulfilled three different aspects of education. They have to have education, so you have to have gone to a landscape architecture program that's accredited. They have to have some kind of professional experience. And then you have to take a series of four or five tests, depending on where you work in the United States. And those cover things like drainage, public health and safety. Like, it's all the, like, engineering aspects Mm -hmm. of landscape design. It actually, those tests don't include anything about plants or ecology. So if you're looking at hiring a landscape architect, it's someone who's really trained in the technical things about structure and drainage and vehicular circulation and all of those kinds of things landscape designers tend to be a lot more on the residential and smaller scale and plant focused side and so i think if that's kind of really what's driving your interest that for most people landscape designer would be probably a better choice and there are a couple of landscape design actual like university programs in the united states Mm um i don't know that much about landscape design programs internationally but a lot of people that end up doing landscape design end up getting a horticulture degree or an ecology degree, something like that. Um, so I think, I think that would be kind of the big split, is if you're really interested in kind of engineering and you want some creative aspect to it, I would encourage you to go the landscape architecture route. Um, but if you really want to be working with plants, probably more of a horticulture landscape design route is probably a better option
0: how did you decide to go into landscape architecture rather than uh, something horticulture, botany related? Is it that desire to kind of design with plants?
2: Yeah. Uh, So I actually had the opportunity before going to university. I worked for a couple of years at a specialty nursery in Kirkwood, Missouri, um, which is a suburb of St. Louis called Mm -hmm. Sugar Creek Gardens and there i was able to get really great hands-on experience of growing plants like from plugs to finishing them it was you know the owner at different times we had to have like 20 different varieties of phlox paniculata so i and like we were growing them all on and like i was getting to really see that nursery production side Mm -hmm. and kind of working with customers and seeing their questions and i realized that for me that kind of retail experience and like really working directly with a lot of residential gardens wasn't necessarily what I found interesting. Um, I was really more interested in kind of larger scale plant communities and really thinking about how those systems actually work more than working with people on their individual gardens. And so that was what really compelled me. And then I also was able to get in-state tuition at K-State. Missouri doesn't have an um, in-state landscape architecture state program. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to get in-state tuition to K-State. So that was a really big motivating factor. That's
0: That's amazing, yeah. Yeah. Knowing how much college costs.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, especially yeah. in landscape architecture, there's a few programs that still just do a bachelor's degree. But for your kind of primary professional degree, it is a master's. So mm-hmm. my program was a combined undergrad and grad program. So you kind of, you did five years and you went through, you went to school over the summer and you did both things. Um, but, you know, there's other models where you have to kind of do five or six years. So it's a lot of school. Um, yeah. So if you're someone yeah. who doesn't like school, it's going to be a little bit difficult thing to, you know, get into. So yeah. If you like school, maybe that maybe that is a good option for you. So I don't know. It's a very individual um, decision to make, I would say. But actually, what I would really encourage high schoolers to do is, you know, if you can, over some of those summers in school, just go talk to different landscape architects and see if you can shadow them for a oh. day or two. Because yeah. most... Yeah we know you know like all the people in this room and the as we know through our experiences with the plant community a lot of times people are very generous with their time and their attention and if you're respectful of them and ask and kind of build those relationships i think you can learn a lot really quickly from those kind of interactions with professionals
0: and i recommend that to anybody in high school who is trying to decide what field they're going into to shadow somebody i know from personal experience that people telling you oh you'd be good at this is not enough. You need to understand what that field is and you need to really feel like you're this is the right direction for you. So I I guess I'm kind of on a quest to tell people that because I was very unhappy in my major. Yeah, I think that also just
2: really depends on physically where you're located too, where you're growing up, what kind of access you have to people because I grew up in a rural community at the edge of the Ozarks and I didn't know anyone who was a landscape architect or, you know, garden designer, landscape designer, anything like that. Um I got to know a couple of horticulturists through being able to visit the Missouri Botanical Garden and like work with different nurseries in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. But, you know, prior to going into it, I really didn't have a very strong idea of what being a landscape architect looked like. So, I'm really happy with the Education that I got and what it's enabled me to do with my career. I think mm-hmm. that design school gives you a really robust set of skills for making decisions and, like, helps you kind of really think through figuring out challenging scenarios. But I don't know if it's necessarily, you know, it's it's not necessarily the right path for everybody. So right. also I really encourage you to don't just talk to one landscape architect because the field is so... Like, what I do is really different from what most of the people who I graduated with from school do. So one of my classmates now is, like, a site surveyor for the National Park Service. So she goes around and records all of the plants and built elements of different national parks. And then another one, like, others do um, transportation planning for the New York Department of Transportation. Really? Yeah, if you talk to any of the people who we graduated with, you can talk, like, you can have a very different career with the same degree.
0: Learn something new every day. (laughs) So I read on the internet, as one does, (laughs) that your practice centers on planting design and materiality with a focus on wild plant communities of the Gulf Coast and Caribbean. So I wanted to ask you, what is materiality?
2: Materiality is just that's like a designer word for the physical stuff that everything gets built from. So I really work on making gardens that are like really beautifully put together in all of their materials. So it might be the stones and the pebbles Mm -hmm. and the way they're connected. Um, That's plants as well. Mm -hmm. And then think about woods and lumber. So here in the Caribbean with our connection to the subtropics, we have really beautiful lumber species Um, throughout the United States. People use Ipe, which actually is a variety of tabebuia that grows throughout south america and so you know kind of the practice that i work with really centers on figuring out okay what are the best materials that we can use to craft really beautiful gardens that work for our clients for a long time
0: yeah that's cool that yeah like i our... really
2: like it like it's a cool connection like For me, the exciting thing about design is the connection to places, people, and Mm -hmm. other beings, especially plants. And to me, that's like the exciting part is like, you know, when you can work with a craftsperson who's like the best steel welder that you, you know, can find in your local area and then you collaborate with them to create something really beautiful. um, That's a really exciting thing for me.
0: Yeah, I can see how that would be highly satisfying to dream something up and to get this group of fantastic people to have it come true Mm -hmm. and see all these beautiful elements interacting together. I think with garden design, to me, and I'm not a professional, but seeing all the elements next to each other, it's like when somebody asks you, what's your favorite plant? It's not about the individual plant. It's about how everything works together. That's what I find exciting.
2: Yeah, definitely.
0: And then the other part of that is working with wild plant communities. What does that mean to uh, create a plant community?
2: Yeah, so something that, you know, in the history of people interacting with plants in different ways, like there's this really long history of different groups of people who have had really varied different types of relationships to plants, right? So. First peoples across the world used plants because that was a big component of the materials that they had and they managed Mm -hmm. them in really different ways. And then through the kind of the industrial revolution and colonization, a lot of, we we developed this gardening tradition that's really very often about trying to grow things that aren't necessarily fit to the environments in Mm -hmm. which we currently live, right? So, Mm -hmm all of us all of us have our little plant collector side right where there's something we absolutely yes. want to grow that some more
0: than others work. right joseph
2: <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> i mean if you're like joseph or i you just move around enough to be able to experience life in a lot of different climate zones and then you're able to satisfy some of those cravings um, but for me as a as a professional like Of course, I have my collection of stuff that doesn't want to grow here um, that I have in pots. But (laughs) as a professional designer, I really want to work with the existing sites as much as possible and create plant communities that work together with minimal effort and can kind of sustain themselves. So Mm -hmm. I'm creating work that's kind of similar to what ecologists do. Um, And so that requires me to really look at plant communities and what are all of the forces that shape how they grow and what those plants look like. So all of the plants that we use have physical traits that are in response to different things, right? So, yes. you know, plants that grow in hot, dry conditions often have silvery leaves, right? And also each of those things doesn't just, in nature, they don't just occur for no reason. They're all responses to different evolutionary forces. Yeah. So as a designer who wants to create new not kind of novel ecosystems and novel plant communities, the more that you understand where plants grow in the wild and how they grow, the better equipped you are to be able to design. And so, on the island where I work, Sanibel Island, we actually have a requirement to use a lot of native plants to the island specifically. So, there's about. Yeah, I
0: heard four. it's like 70% or something.
2: Yes, yeah, so in any of the gardens that we create. Um, we need to create le- include at least three native species for every exotic species that we include. And so wow. part of that then is: involved... Huh?: Oh, I, I love
1: that. I love that idea.
2: That yeah, its really Yeah, it's one of the most progressive native plant ordinances in the United States. And so as a designer, it's really like it, it creates a great situation for me, right? Because I have to go out there and map all of the existing species and all the existing plant communities and document them all and then show how we're going to preserve them through the course of design. But then it also involves a lot of education because that's something that the, the realtors don't tell people when they're purchasing properties on the island. So you have people who are coming from all over the United States and they come and they buy a property and they are thinking that they're going to get some kind of a Hawaiian looking like lush tropical garden. and you know, most of our native species have small leaves that are predominantly gray and silver and mm-hmm. brown. And so it's continually navigating that, aesthetic. you know, the kind of challenge between what our native ecosystems are and what people's kind of expectations for those gardens might be. So the way that we use, that we do that a lot of times is that we use kind of plants with really big and showy flowers right around people's front doors and the things that they see every day. And then we create most of the rest of their landscape as something that blends more into their surroundings um, and really works with the native species and creates that structure. So that way we're kind of getting a little bit of the best of both. Um, And of course, we're not using anything that is exotic invasives um, and wouldn't be appropriate for the ecosystem. We're using things that kind of through horticulture over the last hundred years or so have kind of demonstrated not to be overtaking native ecosystems so Mm -hmm. it's a really it's a really great context in which to design um but you don't
0: find it restrictive
2: personally i find it like a fun challenge it's more like a puzzle but Mm -hmm. it um some designers really like react badly to it and it's more about managing i I
0: think i would be one of those (laughs) to be honest (laughs) what are the reasons for the restrictiveness is it use of water and supporting native pollinators
2: so it's kind of a combination. It's really that you know we live on this barrier island, um, and it was in the early '90s. It was set aside as a sanctuary island that's supposed to be oh, okay. primarily okay. designated for ecological environment and environmental. Purposes. Okay. So well, that makes really sense. Part of the island is set aside as um, ecological preserve. I think it's it's not part of, one of It's not part of the Mississippi Flyway. It's actually it's actually weird for Florida. We're actually a really low plant species diversity area um, because we're a barrier island. So it is sand, it's really high disturbance. You know, it's a lot of sea oats and dune vegetation. Um, Historically, the island burnt every, you know, five to 10 years through a lightning strike until it was developed. So it was primarily grasslands. And now it's actually parts that are converting to tropical hardwood, which is kind of like like a historical anomaly that's only occurring because the site's developed. it's a really wow. interesting and strange submission from an ecological perspective. Um, it makes it a really fruitful and place nice to be a designer for sure.
0: So what do you grow at home? Do you have a garden or is that a part of your life you leave at work?
2: So at the usually I have a porch garden of some sort. I have a really bad uh-huh. bad water access situation at my current apartment.
0: And uh-huh. so I managed
2: to kill most of the plants that I had in pots.
0: Um, <laughs> I
2: do have a display. I garden out front of my interesting things. I want in right now. I'm really focusing on trying to find good pollinator species that are both physically attractive and then also like one of my aesthetic goals is always to get as much movement. Uh-huh. So I like think that like move a lot in the wind and are really, really kind of billowy and have that more natural. Mm-hmm. I feel than something that's like squat and so like I have, have, have a couple of our like our older pentas species that have reverted from seed over time, so they're no longer twelve inches tall. They're now like 30 tall, and the are on the like, wonderful long, windy stems. Yeah, um, so I have a bunch of stuff like that growing out in front of our office, and then it's fun too because we can look out the window and see, you know, all kinds of bees pollinator species up front. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I'm not a fan of the trend of plants being developed to be squat. I love the tall plants because even if you don't have a lot of space, you could still go up.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think there is, there's this kind of, in landscape architecture, we talk a lot about the idea of what's called cues to care. So those are physical traits that people look for in their environment that signal that other humans have been there or are somehow Mm. involved with a landscape. And so those involve things that you kind of don't see a lot in wild plant communities. So it's like things that are clipped into specific Uh heights or things that are really squat or things that have a lot of colorful flowers for a long time or really physically large flowers. And those are things that people, you know, kind of the general public tend to find really attractive about landscapes. And so I think part of our job as designers is to be
0: a psychologist.
2: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. A mind reader is a better, like, okay. some kind of parapsychology or supernatural ability would be the ideal situation. <laughs> um, but yes, you're you're always trying to tease out not only, not only what are the surface things that people are asking for, but what are the kind of their lower motivations. So a lot of times we'll have people who say, I like this or I like that. And they don't, they aren't designers, so they don't have the vocabulary to tell you this is what I actually want. But yeah. Very often our clients are looking for, to show through their landscapes that they are, you know, exerting care or control or somehow Mm -hmm. displaying that they're a good person and a good part of their neighborhood.
0: And so your
2: job is to basically create a landscape that still fulfills its ecological functions and has that structure for all the critters that use our island, um, but also, you know, helps nod towards their aesthetic vision So sometimes that can be as easy as choosing species around the edges that don't grow super tall and then letting things get taller as they kind of fade back into the landscape. That can be a really good strategy or including Mm -hmm. just a couple of things that have really big flowers amidst plants that have smaller leaves or that are more attractive to our native critters. So I don't know, there's all kinds of different ways around it and you know, you're going to make mistakes, but at the end of the day, somebody else is paying for what you're doing. So you, you know, hopefully don't mess up too bad and you figure, out a su- you, you figure out a solution if things haven't gone well.
0: I think it's always hard for a designer in any field of design to balance what they feel is the right thing to do with what the client wants. And I think it's difficult to talk. I think on, on both sides as a client and as a professional, it's hard to communicate. <laughs>
2: Definitely. And, you know, communication is just the core of our job. And you're always going to have a range of clients that have really different desires. So Mm -hmm. I'm really having fun right now. I have one client who wants her own private botanical garden, and she's a really dedicated plants person. And so I've been having so much fun. She also, you know, she kind of has learned about the ecosystem where Mm -hmm. we live. And so we're specifically talking about, okay, how do we include as many plants as possible that are you know part of our local ecosystem and she's actually really lucky to have one of our really rare species the um joe wood and i'm blanking on what the botanical name is it's Jaquinter, Jaquinta or something um but it has incredibly Jaquinea quiensis. um it's it's most of its range is actually down in the Florida Keys and it has these incredibly they're tiny white but incredibly fragrant flowers. It's so cool. Mm,
0: Sounds lovely.
2: Yeah, it kind of grows in like a scrubby under, it grows in a scrubby understory. So if it gets exposed to like full light conditions, it's not happy. If it gets exposed to full shade, it's not happy. But she has perfect scenario for it. And so she has like six plants. And I think there's not, I mean, there's like a handful of them on the entire set of islands. So it's really lucky that they're under the care of someone who cares who is going yeah. to
0: Yeah. That sounds like a fun project.
2: Mm-hmm. Definitely.
0: Um, Most of our listeners are home gardeners and might not even know where to start designing their outdoor spaces. Could you give us a quick lesson in everything you learned in five years of college and all your years of professional experience?
2: The place where you live and you're going to be the one experiencing it the most and so if you don't enjoy it and you don't value it and it's not what you want then it doesn't matter and so Mm -hmm. I always start with okay what is what is the feeling that I want in this specific area and how do I support that with plants so you know when I had access to an actual physical pot of land and was doing like home gardening Temptation is always to just kind of go and pick out one of everything that you like the most, right? And then kind of (laughs) spread it around kind of to the places where it'll grow and survive. Yes. And if that is, if that is what makes you happy about being in your landscape, like absolutely go for it. Um, But I think that if you're trying to, you know, think about the other people who are going to use your garden, I think... I really start with, okay, do I want to feel like serene in this space? Do I want to, like, what do I like about the space already? And what do I want to enhance about it? Or how do I want to completely change it? So because I work on a barrier island, a lot of my clients have properties that face onto the ocean, which you want to celebrate that view, right? So you want to frame it from specific spots. So a lot of times if they have a beachfront property, that's one of the primary things that we're working with. They're coming here specifically because they want to access the water. So if you're a home gardener, maybe you don't have an access to a water view, but maybe you have a tree that you really like. And so think about in your design, how are you going to celebrate that tree? So maybe if you have a really beautiful tree that you like, instead of crowding it with other new trees like slammed around it, you want to give it some space and like, Maybe you leave like an area of kind of somewhat untended lawn that kind of can grow near it and creates a place to actually sit and enjoy it. So I wasn't going to start with feeling. The next thing is to match your plants to your site conditions. And so this is what I was talking about a little bit earlier is instead of fighting with the site that you have, really figure out what are the species that are best matched to it. And usually the best way to find that out is to look at The native plant communities in your area especially those that physically match the conditions of your site so maybe you live somewhere that's kind of swampy and wet go and look at the swampy and wet areas around you in nature preserves and see what's growing there maybe talk to somebody who knows to make sure that you're not you know seeing that this is a bunch of invasive plants that are growing there um do a little bit of digging around but Instead of fighting the conditions that you've got, match, the, match your plants to those site conditions. Try to use, you know, plants that are native to your ecoregion as much as possible. And that'll help you both reduce your inputs of fertilizer and water. And then also should, if the plants are already happy, you know, you won't have to do as many, um, you won't have as much like fixing things because you're trying to grow plants in areas that they don't like. And then the other thing that I would try to do is really do experiments on your garden or your landscape to figure out, are there things that you can do with the care on timing that will reduce the overall effort that you have to put in? So a lot of horticultural traditions were kind of created and evolved when labor was really cheap, right? We have like traditions like staking and deadheading and some of those kinds of things, and are some of those are techniques that like yeah if you want to spend all your time staking dahlias like by all means go ahead and do it but there's um horticultural things that you can do like maybe you can chop your plants twice as they're growing and then they'll naturally branch a little bit more and be shorter and you won't have to worry as much about those kind of staking and horticultural things so Try being playful and experimental with the plants that you have. Oh, and, and I guess the last design thing I would say is if in doubt, just plant more of one thing and not one of every other thing. Like have things in bigger groups is yeah. usually good design advice.
0: Yep. I think those
2: are the four most important things. To be honest, the matching the plants to the site conditions is probably one of the hardest things to do but also is potentially the most rewarding. And I imagine Passiflora agrees with that one. Oh yeah. Except I...
0: Passiflora <laughs> has a bunch of very non-native stuff in his home.
2: Yeah I've
1: a pile of it I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but,
2: but the other thing I think that you have to think about in context is like most of us who care about plants are you know over the course of our lives and our careers, especially if you're working in horticulture, you're just wanting to have a net positive impact. And so, 100%. if you you know if it makes sense, it's not like one of the gardens that I show that we actually just finished yesterday is a temporary show garden for a wedding. It has 120 phalaenopsis orchids that are placed through it. Those orchids are doing nothing for the ecosystem, but they look amazing for the next they month. Do.
0: And so, beautiful.
2: you know, if if doing that kind of orchid display got us to get this owner to restore their dune and to include a lot more native shrubs and to, like, create this overall landscape that's really functioning and is creating really, you know, beautiful experiences for them in the long term, it's worth it to have those things that are, you know, more ridiculous. Like, I don't I don't know that it's useful to try to tell anyone that you have to be kind of Puritan in some way. Um, Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, we're choosing to do this as an activity. Like, it should be fun, and it should be engaging.
0: Do you think about uh, design principles like how to combine color, shape, texture, all those things? Do those play a large role in your design?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, But I don't have five years to tell you about them. <laughs> yeah. But I, th- I think the, uh, the thing that I mainly think about, it comes back to that uh, first idea that I talked about where supporting a feeling. The first thing mm-hmm. you want to do is try to really think about how your spaces are organized. And so, you know, trying to create different, say you have, you know, some kind of a standard house on a lot that's gonna kind of start to divide your space up into like a front yard, a backyard, and side yards, right? So really take a look at each of those kind of areas and go, okay, is this the sunny one? I wanna enhance the sunny characteristics of this area. And so then maybe you keep it, if it's a sunny area already, maybe you keep it as an open space. Or maybe maybe you're like me and any shade, like you could live in under a tree canopy all the time and never have to see the sun. That's my ideal.
0: I think in um, Florida, that makes a lot of sense.
2: Yeah, no, I've made, you know, <laughs> choices have been made. Um, but anyway, the, the, you know, maybe you don't want, so in that case, you would want to change your front yard. You want to plant trees into it and get that canopy in there as soon as possible. So all the physical things that you're doing are in order to support the feeling that you want to have. And so mm-hmm. I think... To create some kind of sense of organization and order is typically a good idea and some of that can just mean choosing specific areas that are garden beds and letting certain plants get really big and fit their mature size and having other areas where you really mess around and experiment Uh but then all the things about you know color and fragrance and arranging things in specific orders like That to me feels like the more you just look at Instagram, watch YouTube, look at Pinterest, go to garden, see what you like and replicate the things that you like and don't do the things you don't like. Um, That is basically (laughs) what design school is, is you just try things through drawing over and over and over again until you kind of figure out what you like and what you don't and what works. So yeah.
0: Something that used to be said a lot in design school for me, and uh, I went to industrial design school, um, it was, uh, we don't design in a vacuum. Yeah. you you got to learn so much. It's basically being a sponge and taking Mm -hmm. in everything. And most of the learning is just being that sponge. And I really didn't learn most things until after graduation, because I really learned to be the sponge during that time. Mm -hmm. (laughs)
2: yeah absolutely and I think that's one of the really big like that to me is a really big advantage of the way that landscape architecture is taught is that you're really taught to have the knowledge of all these different disciplines right because we have to learn from ecologists Mm -hmm. about the wild plant communities Mm -hmm. and we have to learn from hydrologists about how water moves across the site and you have to learn from soil scientists about how the underlying bedrock you know changes the soil composition and so as a landscape architect you're never going to be The expert on a specific type of thing, but you try, you kind of have this generalist knowledge of how things fit together and mostly know when to call in, you know, someone who knows more than you. So, especially since I have so many plant nerd friends, (laughs) all of them, there's always going to be someone who knows more about certain plants than me. But I do, because of the places I've worked, I have a really wide knowledge of. Different plants for a lot of regions.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Should we get to our audience questions now, Space Butler?
1: Before we we jump into that, uh, I want to have the opportunity for for other people on the panel here to ask any questions that they had uh, from from this discussion here. I know Passy had some some things to ask. Yeah. Um. I guess as far as like you know, for people who do want to kind of move into this, or they you know they might want to consider doing something like this for themselves, right? What are, yeah. what are like some really common mistakes you see people making?
2: Mm. I think... Okay, so this... Are you, are you talking about it in terms of starting like a design practice, or are you thinking about doing design for yourself in your home garden?
1: If, if they wanted to do design for themselves in their home garden.
2: So... The Actually, the really big advantage that home gardeners have over professional designers is that you have the advantage of time, right? And you can see your property in, at different times of the day, at different times of the night. You don't, you know, as a landscape architect, I, I work really close to most of the jobs that I do. And so I can often stop by, you know, two or three times for 45 minutes to an hour before doing a design for the site. And so, also, I like as a professional designer. I've looked at a lot of different sites, and I know what works and what doesn't. As a home gardener, you can get to know your specific landscape really well. And so, I would encourage most people to kind of. Yeah, you may have some, you know, initial annual planting that you want to do for a while, um, but really, that first year, especially that you're living somewhere really pay attention to it and make like a habit of spending okay maybe you know every weekend that you have to spend at least an hour in a chair in different parts of your yard to really be able to observe it and understand what's going on because the thing you don't want to do is plant a bunch of really big trees and five years from now be you know number one sad because you like all these trees and you've seen them grow up and you've paid care and attention to them and now they're all too big. Um. That's kind of trying to put too many big things in too small of a space is the probably the number one thing that I see. You know, home gardeners struggling with and not. It's hard to
0: have faith in the maximum size of a plant, but they often surprise you by getting even bigger than the maximum size when they're happy. Absolutely.
2: Definitely, and that this this is depressing. Time goes by more quickly than you think it will. Yes, oh yes. That tree is going to reach its, you know, five or 10 or 15 foot height, you know, much faster than you ever thought it would when it was a seedling that you borrowed off someone at a Portland plant sale.
0: (laughs) That's Um, very specific.
1: (laughs) Is
2: there a backstory to
1: that? (laughs)
2: I've I've just been in some friend's gardens <laughs> and it's like, oh yeah, I got this from such and such person and now it's 25 feet tall and I <laughs> cut it down because there's only three of it in the world. And it's oh, like, no. well, you should have oh, wow. thought that before you put it there. Um, I mean, you can design like as like as a designer, I very often will overplant things, but I'm over planting things that are not rare or not unusual or i i also have almost no emotional attachment to plants anymore because it's my job so i can walk in and say cut down half of the trees on this site and have absolutely no you know emotional attachment to them and you're going to really struggle with that as a home gardener if it's what you've kind of taken care of so leaves eventual sizes be the primary thing that i think most home gardeners get wrong i mean i don't know i think being too didactic about your home garden is kind of the other big problem that i see people fall into like they get like we all go through different enthusiasms with different plants and different things but like just relax a lot about it a little bit have fun with it yeah i mean that's again that's why you're doing it especially if you're a home gardener like No one's paying you to do this, so you better be having fun. And you
0: know, the way I think of landscape design is actually like it's 4D design. You're designing in this 3D space, but it also changes over time. You can't, you know, it might look wonderful one minute, but you can't expect those plants to look like that forever. They will die, they will change, they were, you know, might get attacked by something. Absolutely. It's, It's all... You, you got to think ahead to what it's going to look like in, in another, at another season and I mean, what the different combinations will happen in different seasons.
2: I think also really, another thing you can miss out on as a home gardener is appreciating how your plants connect you to other people and other beings. So I know I used using the word critters earlier because I think it's, it's a good one. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I think you know, as a home gardener, a lot of times at the beginning, you're really trying to get everything to grow the best and be kind of like the most beautiful specimen and look orderly and all those kinds of things. But if you start to think about how you can really engage, um, you know, designing for all the different creatures that use your garden and for the whole ecosystem, um, because that's a really big source of joy, I think, of seeing, oh yeah, like this bird really loves the seed heads on my echinaceas or... You know getting the being able to see at different times of day different butterflies and wasps coming to all of your pollinator plants like that's such an exciting thing that i don't think you know if you're spending this time in your landscape you don't want to miss out on that but then also the connections to other people so i think in, you know in the united states we have so many different cultural traditions that plants connect us to and so especially living here in south florida to me it's so much fun to go to my regional botanical garden and hear people from all different backgrounds talking about oh we grew this plant in paraguay where i grew up like my grandmother always did this with that plant like all of those kind of backstories about all the different plants that we grow i think are really exciting so celebrating those as much as possible in your garden is something i don't think anyone should
0: miss out on yeah i think that idea is actually getting a lot of attention lately there's a lot of community gardens that celebrate cultural heritage and there's i think some seed sellers that are uh, creating collections around these uh, cultural family sort of traditions and gathering yeah. these seeds to share with other people. And it's, it's got a lovely cozy quality to it. So that's it makes it
2: harder do. to cut down that tree <laughs> when it needs to be cut down. When you <laughs> <have a laughs> that's, that's when that's you call cool. me Joseph.
1: Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay cool. And I, I actually, I have a second question, if you don't mind. Um, what's something that like, you know, right now it's so straightforward to you. And like, you think about this constantly whenever you're doing landscape architecture and design and, you know, it's something that it's so intuitive to you now, but like, you didn't know at the beginning and like, you just, you wish that somebody just sat you down and was like, Hey, listen, you just got to do this, you know? Uh
2: um i I think so when i when it comes to the kind of professional stuff, it's about how much communication and relationships are part of your practice mm-hmm. um but when it comes to actual physical design, I think the main thing that i've kind of that's always been a challenge when I get into a new place is just figuring out like what sizes plants are at different stages in your life or not in your life in their lives, so like how big is a seven gallon magnolia typically versus what will it look like in three years what will it look like in five years what will it look like in 25 years and that's something that as a designer is really important to understand okay if i specify a plant that is this gallon size how big is that typically going to be what's that going to look like i don't know that that's a set of knowledge that you can really like download all at once but the more that you Go to nurseries go to public gardens see things at different levels of establishment um the quicker you can learn that but from a professional perspective i think um really think oh you know the other thing about plants and plant communities is how much uh, and this is this is like a really complicated topic but it's really exciting and interesting it's how different plants are more like some species like competition and other species don't and so oh yeah like figuring out okay which species love competition and can grow right up against other things and then which ones don't and want to be on their own is really tricky because if you're looking at a nursery catalog it's not going to tell you any of that information if you see a plant in a nursery You're not going to be able to just look at it for the most part and know whether it likes competition or not. There's things about its structure that you can look at. like. But even think about grasses. Some of them are very, you know, they want to grow together really closely and they love competition. They love being all packed together. There's others, like, I'm thinking about, like, Dechampia's for, like, a cool climate grass. Very often don't like competition. They want to be all kind of spread out, whereas... Um, I'm trying to think about like here we have different um Andropogon species that will grow like right up jammed against each other. So that that can really affect how you use them in a design or in a garden, right? Because if you plant a really thick matrix planting of something that doesn't like competition, it's going to die out in patches because those plants don't like things leaning up like other plants leaning up against them. Um and that's something you can really only learn by looking at wild plant communities are reading a lot of white papers and even there aren't that many good ones on plant community. I think I've seen
0: James Titchmo, am I pronouncing his name right? Talk Benjamin about something Tichmo. like that. Yeah, yeah, he
2: works with that a lot. There's been a lot of research done um on plant competitiveness in Germany and in the University of Sheffield. But as someone who has always worked in the like southern United States, that's not super helpful. Um, so i actually look at there are in florida we have the um oh it's the fnep it's one of the department of conservation actually has a set of different plant community descriptions that you can look at and so it describes how different plant communities are put together in different ecological situations and looking at those like saying okay this is a hardwood hammock so these are the plants that grow in kind of a lot of shade where you have really deep soil um versus this is what grows in like a sandy dune versus this is what grows in a like wetland meadow and just talk specifically about the relationship between soil and how different plant communities grow there i find those kind of documents from different ecologists really useful
1: okay yeah i know i know we actually have something similar to that up here in alberta canada and it's it's a guide where it has Not only like the species and the compositions, proportions you might expect to see, but also the hydrology and the soil types. So I could I could see that kind of being a a pretty common thing then, hopefully at least in other places, too.
2: I think like, you know, I've here in Florida, you know, we have a pretty good Department of Environmental Protection just because the landscape is such a big part of why people are here. Um, Some other states have that, but again, a lot of the states, you know, when I was working in Louisiana and Arkansas, um, that is very low down on your priority list when your populations are struggling to eat. Um, So it just really depends on where you are, Um, which is unfortunate because, you know, some of the least economically... Oh, I don't even know what they're like. Some of the most economically depressed areas of the United States are some of those that have the most exciting and interesting and like really cool and precious plant communities that we don't want to lose, um, and that we need to learn more about. So I don't know. That's part of why I talk about the Gulf Coast plantings being really important to me because I think it's something that hasn't been celebrated enough.
0: Yeah.
1: Cool. Well, thank you for uh, thank you for answering my questions there.
2: Oh, you're welcome. Thank thank you for providing me with a soapbox. When I have the opportunity, <laughs> I will talk about wild plant communities and why we should all be out walking through them and looking at them and understanding them.
0: Well, the best talks are always the ones that the speaker feels the strongest about, so it's our That's pleasure true. to listen.
1: But after walking through them, please sanitize the bottom of your shoes. <laughs> Let's just stop the spread of wild, invasive plants and awful kitchen fungus, please.
2: Oh, absolutely. And then also examine yourself for ticks. It's oh
0: always a good plan. <laughs>
2: Smart.
0: Hey, listeners. We were having so much fun recording this episode. We went way over time. So we're splitting it into two parts. You've just listened to part one. In part two, Caleb, Joseph, Passy, and Zappi answer our members' big burning questions. Thanks for listening!